Hi, this is Kalia. And this is Chris. And this is It's a, a Queer Thing. On this show, we focus on politics, civil rights, news, and entertainment. And on this show, we have special guests and interviews focusing on issues relevant to the LGBTQ community. So let's get to it. Hey, Chris. Hey, Kalia. Happy pumpkin spice season. Oh, pumpkin spice. You know, that's a very um, controversial topic because so many people hate it and so many people love it. I will say that those people who hate it um, should just, I'm going to say eat a bag of dicks. That's what I'm going to say. They just need to eat a bag of dicks and sit on a fucking tack and kick rocks and all the things because that's dumb. You know what? I'm not a huge fan of pumpkin spice. Like, it's fine. I like a little bit of it. The the yeah. lattes are too sweet for me. But I am really over people just crapping on things that other people like for no reason. Yeah, like, that's just I totally dumb. agree with you. It's like there's a whole thing about ketchup on hot dogs. And people get so upset about ketchup on hot dogs. And I'm like, why would you get upset about ketchup on hot dogs? Did we already talk about this? or no? I don't think we did because I definitely put ketchup and mustard and relish on my hot dog. Yeah, but ketchup is the thing. I put everything on my hot dog and sometimes nothing and sometimes a little. But I mean, you eat pineapple on pizza. Absolutely. absolutely. I I knew that you were going to say that because we share pizza. (laughs) Yeah, And I just think it doesn't matter what you like or dislike. That's what you like or dislike. Don't rag on other people because they might want to put ketchup on a hot dog or pineapple on a pizza. So, you know, that reminds me we're coming into fall, which I know is my at fall and winter, which is my favorite time of year, and I know it's not <laughs> your favorite time of year. Well, Halloween watch. Have you bought your your decorations? No, I was good. I decided wow. no. I, and I almost we were out yesterday because we went to get our our vaccine boosters yesterday because there was an outbreak at my job of COVID on Friday. Several people with COVID, so they made us all put on masks and all take a COVID test, and I pass. And then I said, well, I'm getting a a booster on Sunday. So I don't care. We'd already scheduled it. We had an appointment. So we go to Walgreens right by our house. It was two minutes away. I was so excited. I didn't have to shower or dress or anything. We get over there. She starts to go through her little thing and we've gotten our boosters there before. And she says, Oh, do you guys have Kaiser insurance? And I'm like, yeah, we have Kaiser insurance because Kaiser has pulled all of the contracts with Walgreens and CVS. You can't get your booster here. You have to go to Kaiser. Kaiser has the flu vaccine. But they um, are waiting to do the COVID one. Well, yeah. So we drove. I said, James, we're out. We're here. Let's just drive to Kaiser and get it done. So we drove out to Kaiser. Kaiser said, no, we don't have any COVID boosters. And James talked to somebody in the after hours because it was Sunday, the after hours little desk. And she said, oh, honey, they're not doing COVID boosters anymore because of the government shutdown. And James goes, first of all, the government hasn't shut down yet. And second of all, we were just at Walgreens and they were willing to give us our booster, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, I don't even think boosters are a thing anymore. This was a representative at Kaiser. Okay, well, she's wrong. I talked to the gal in front of at their little flu clinic, flu shot clinic out in front. Because that's why I was sitting there waiting for a ride the other day. And um, they said that they... They had had them and they pulled them because there's a new strain and the boosters that had been being administered weren't being as effective. So they're going to roll it in and in a month or so you can get a better booster. 
So yeah, I heard they were going to do it the middle of October, but yeah. the Walgreens boosters are about the new strain. They just released it like a week ago. There was a it was a big news story. So I don't well, know. And when she said government shutdown, she might have meant Kaiser shutdown because you know that everyone's gearing up for Kaiser to be on strike and it's going to be really right. hard to get in and make appointments and do all which of that. we have covered on our show with Melanie. We Reno. so yes, did. Yeah. Yes, we did. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, but fall. let's talk about fall for a second sure. because it makes me happy. Okay. So I didn't buy, I didn't buy any Halloween decorations from Martha Stewart's Grandin road. I I'm a little, I'm not really irritated because I bought plenty in the past. I almost had James stop at Michael's yesterday, but I was in a mood after getting denied my vaccine. So <laughs> I didn't think it was a good time to shop. But so you must have something you like about, you know, October, I did November, actually, December. I bought a fall thing today. I was at the grocery store and they have the pine cones that have the different scents. So you can just put them in a bowl and then the whole room smells nice. And right. you can get cinnamon, you can get vanilla bean or pumpkin spice. I actually have pumpkin spice. So my whole kitchen dining room area smells like I've been making pumpkin pie in there. And I have definitely not. Cool, and we not. know you have it. Yeah, we know you have it. <laughs> what about, um, what about, because food is such a big part of the fall. What's your favorite, you know, and I know you have a fabulous Christmas party in December. Yes. What's your favorite food that comes out in the fall that, and I know you're mm. not a huge cooker, but Hooker. you do cook. <laughs> Hooker, I know. That's a... Chef, maybe? Uh, Chef, yes. Chef. Um, You're not a... but, but, but there must be something. Well, I really like candy corn. <laughs> that's a Halloween oh, candy. Let's raise a little higher than candy corn. Um, I don't know. I Like, do you like turkey, ham, Turkey's potatoes? Fine. Ham's um, fine. Mashed potatoes are fine. I, I'm not a huge fan of pumpkin stuffing. Pumpkin pie, apple pie, stuffing, nothing. Yeah, no. I mean, they're all good. And, and I think that, you know, you eat them several times in, in, I mean, okay, so here's the thing. We don't just eat them only on Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? right so right. I, you know, they're just part of the regular winter food. So the way, because I don't like cooking, I have a set of recipes that I will cook for about a month or so, and it'll be, you know, pretty repetitive. And then the next yeah. month it kind of changes and it's a different group of 15 things that I cycle through. And then the next month. So in my, in this fall time, I will start using my crock pot in about a month or so oh, yeah, to, to yeah, do yeah. some certain things. You know, we'll have stuffing before Thanksgiving because it's an easy thing to do in the, you know, in the oven. And right. uh, we eat a lot of mashed potatoes and a lot of baked potatoes in the winter time. I know you and I are kind of at the opposite ends of the spectrum here because I look forward to the temperature going down like around Halloween and forward. So I, I literally, if I don't have something going on, I will spend every single Sunday in the kitchen from about 10 a.m., 11 a.m., all the way up to 7 p.m., just making stuff. We have so much food that we have to, you know, of course, freeze it, which I'm very lucky because I just emptied the freezer in preparation <laughs> for allowing me to cook so I could fill the freezer. I just love it. I love the cold weather. I love the rain. I love the darkness i love i know these are all the things you hate <laughs> so, what, what do i dislike about fall? the weather the rain the darkness <laughs> that's why i wanted to ask you i think it's curious that as much as we have in common yeah. we're on the exact opposite ends of the scale it's with this kind of well i you know i i do like i like halloween a lot halloween used to be my favorite holiday because you guys typically got to be somebody else for a day and i'm very method in my halloween when i was a kid i would always whatever i was for halloween I was for Halloween. So when I was a cat, I meowed all day. Like there was no talking. 
because I was a cat. I, I so believe that. Yeah. So I, I can't get as into it now because I have like adult responsibilities and stuff, but I still right. definitely enjoy like the idea of Halloween and the whole concept is just, you know, eat candy and be somebody else for a little while. I don't oh, know. That's yeah, fun. absolutely. I think that's totally cool. Yeah. Thanksgiving's cool too. We're going to do a special thing for Thanksgiving and I love New Year's because it's right. It's, it's right after our big party and I love our big party. So yeah. Yeah. And I love you all. I, I really like all of the, the holidays in the winter months. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't like the I weather. I just don't like the weather. That's basically what it is. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I love the weather. So, but anyway, you know. Anyways. I'll make you some cookies and bring them over. That sounds good. So our main focus today is parental rights and, and basically how it's affecting what's going on in the current political climate in terms of outing trans kids and in terms of banning books and not banning books. And we've got a really interesting interview with Nicholas Serafin, who is a law professor at the Santa Clara School of Law. He's going to talk to us about a whole bunch of stuff. But before we get to his interview, which is, which is a great interview, I think it's one of my favorite ones we've done. Let's start with some more like local stuff. A week and a half ago, you went to the Clovis School Board meeting that was in Clovis um, because, as we had talked about on one of our earlier shows, they were putting forth this like site plan and this the, potentially having a written policy about outing trans kids so tell me i wasn't able to go it was my daughter's birthday but what happened at this meeting well this is hard for me because you know me i've been speaking and rallying and protesting and marching for years so i was more than happy to go to this school board meeting after we'd gone to the clovis city council and saw that whole debacle on this one, you couldn't just speak by raising your hand. You had to set it up ahead of time. So meeting started at 6.30. We got there shortly after 6. It was packed. I mean, packed. So I heard, I saw this woman, we're making our way through the crowd, and I saw this woman coming forward, and she was talking to people about, you know, do you want to speak? Do you want to speak? So I grabbed her, and I said, I want to speak. What do I have to do? She said, follow me. So she takes me into a table inside the little lobby there. I had to fill out a piece of paper and say what I was speaking about. And when I got to the subject of what I was speaking about, I asked the guy in front of me, I said, well, what is the actual name of the agenda item that we're talking about is it gender and the woman next to me she goes it's parental rights and i'm like okay i'm in the right place my number was 69 which i thought was hilarious and that was the last moment that i had any bit of hilarity that night we were there for five hours we got there a little after six we didn't leave till almost 11. the first two hours of the meeting was taken up with oh look at this beautiful sports team and look at this beautiful sports team and look at these maintenance workers it was honoring the people who work at clovis unified and the students which is fine but literally two hours of that and also a performance from the play the adams family by three of the actors that were in that play which they sang it's a musical and it was great and then everybody goes and shakes the hands of the city uh or the school board members except the drama people they for some reason did not get to shake the hands of the school board members because all of us were saying come on they're in the family we know who these kids are gay at least two of them but something really interesting happened and i, I when i say interesting i mean very troubling for me it's it's a week and a half later, and I'm still in a funk about this. A little preface, I grew up in Clovis. I went to Clovis Cole Elementary. I went to Clark Intermediate. I went to Clovis High. So I grew up in Clovis, the Clovis community. And I was gay since birth. And back when I grew up, you couldn't talk about being gay. You couldn't even mention gay. You couldn't have any 
correlation with gay people because you would be just chastised and ostracized. Something happened that night. I'm still trying to get my head around it. James noticed, says he noticed it because we were sitting in the very back row right against the wall. And next to us, next to me specifically, actually, James had Robin and Karen on one side of him, on his side of it. I had religious zealots on the other side of me. And I got into an argument with them within five minutes of sitting down, which I decided to curtail because it wasn't going to be very productive. But looking around the room, and I know some of this is going to sound stereotypical, but the hairstyles of the women, the way they were dressed, the accoutrement they had with the little bedazzled bags with American flags, the men in the baseball caps that had PD on the back of them, LAPD or whatever PD, the cowboy hats, something really started to happen to me. And and I, I, I leaned over a few times and held my head because I wasn't sure what was going on. And what happened was eventually I figured it out the next day, actually, when it really hit me, was I grew up in this community. It's been 50 years since I was the subject of bullying and ridicule, not by just kids, but by teachers. I was the victim of all of this. And I have, you know, I, I'm aware. I'm aware that this all happened when I was a child, but I've put it away because I'm now an activist in the LGBTQ plus community and I'm married for 27 years and I'm a proud out gay man. And, you know, I'll be watching a movie or TV or something and see these circumstances and I get a little teary eyed. But this was completely different. I felt I felt like I was claustrophobic. I felt closed in. I, I told James I wanted to flee. I wanted to flee that room. We were there before I spoke, which was close to 11 o'clock. We were there for over four hours. I wanted to flee. I was not scared. I was feeling claustrophobic and terrified so about two hours in after the all the school kids had spoken and at this point the audience is pretty much straight people i mean 90 percent straight people there were some of us gays in the room but it was 90 percent straight people because there were so many people they had to put them into overflow rooms and where they had live tv so you could watch the proceedings they took a 10-minute intermission after this stuff and the straight people bailed all the kids that were being honored the maintenance workers the some of the parents of it and all the gay people flooded in and the the tone of the room completely changed it was no longer now there were still plenty of zealots there the tone of the room changed and i i could actually breathe again but as i was getting closer to giving my speech i was thinking i i can't do this what can i do to get out of this i i'm gonna tell james and robin and everybody else that were there cat that it, you know i've been here too long it's too late i there's no point in hanging around because there were 85 speakers i was 69 because i just wanted out of there i didn't want to be in that room anymore i literally felt like i couldn't breathe we got closer and closer to me doing the speech and i did the speech finally and soon after the speech we left so and I kind of, at that point, I kind of forgot about it. I came home, I went to bed, long day, woke up the next morning, and I was, I, I, I hate to make it sound like I'm making too big a deal about this, but I was traumatized. I was literally traumatized. I, all day at that day at work, I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't think about what I was doing. I kept getting distracted. I kept thinking about my past. And I understood at that moment that that's what these trans kids at these schools are going through, whether they realize it now 
you know, I was the gay kid who got bullied when I was there. Somebody, some woman spoke up during the the speeches and she said, I was bullied in these schools, not just by kids, but by the teachers. And that absolutely happened to me. The teachers bullied me. They ignored when other kids bullied me. They participated in this whole homophobic practice of degrading kids that were LGBTQ and elevating kids that were in sports. I was so depressed the next day. I was crying here and there. I I'm still a week and a half later on the verge of tears just talking about it. And for people who know me, that probably sounds strange because I come off as a very aggressive kind of confident person. Let me just tell you, this has made me think about who I am. I'm not confident ever. At one point, I'm in the back row and I realized I hadn't timed my speech because they only gave us two minutes. So I asked Kat for a pen and she gave me a pen and I'm scratching stuff out and I'm going, do I say this? Do I? This? And Robin grabbed me and she goes, believe in yourself, believe in what you're going to say and just say it. And so I did have to edit some because of time. I've just, I felt like a helpless little punished child in that room. And I've had to deal with it for all this time and I'm still coming to terms with it. What was the makeup in terms of how many people spoke on our side versus the other side? So 85 speakers total, and I would say 70% were on our side. Okay. The other ones that spoke, you would recognize them from the Clovis uh, City Council meeting. They were mostly the same people. When we got there, Kaylee, we walk in the lobby, they were singing in the lobby the Battle Hymn of the Republic. They were singing that. Wow. Then when we got inside, there were others that were humming things. Now, one guy, before he went down, he was standing against near us at the back row. Before they called his, he knew he was next. They called him to speak. He goes down and he's singing Amazing Grace as he's walking toward the podium. This was so religious on their side. And a lot of it was parents. And it was the same theme with the parents. These are my kids. You will not tell me how to raise them. I will vote you out of office. And this was a common thread through all of them. You will die on this mountain. They said that over and over and over again. One guy got up and stood in, in front of the, the board and pointed to the American flag and goes, this is my American flag. And I got so angry at that. I'm like, this is your American flag? Seriously? This is our American flag. Everybody in this room, everybody outside this room, this is our American. How dare you claim the American flag? Um, that it was heavily religious based. And what was interesting, though, was that all of us realized, first of all, the first people to speak were the religious people one right after another so they were organized they got there early they made sure they were the first ones on the list i would say the first 15 people to speak were the religious people who were dead set against the school protecting the trans kids one of the things i said at the end was isn't it interesting all their signs they had pre-made signs that they gave to everybody that said parents rights matter and in my speech at the end i said really think about it their signs say parents rights matter not kids rights matter and not one of these people spoke about how important it was to protect the kids and protect their identities if they were vulnerable because they were trans not one they all said these are my kids don't tread on me i will control this conversation wow that's horrible it was it was horrible i think that speech was part of why i got so upset because they weren't just on the other side of protecting trans kids they were 
all the way on the other side of the planet saying, you guys don't know what you're talking about. There were there was a QAnon freak that went up there and spoke about that stuff. There was two of the women, you saw them at the Clovis City Council meeting. One was QAnon and the other was conspiracy theories and and the others were not far from that. So did the board take any action or do any votes or was it just public comment? At this point, it's just public comment. They did take one vote, which happened after I left because I, I after I spoke, I had to get out of there. Uh, if you don't know, Jason with LGBT Fresno had commissioned them or approached them to have an after school uh, story hour, LGBTQ story hour. And he'd been commissioned. He'd been going after them for a while now to get this approved and nothing had happened. So they voted to ban all outside groups from having uh, school meetings. Okay. All of them. So that includes you know, like the Girl Scouts, the Boy Scouts. Anybody, the, the, anybody that's okay. not school affiliated, they banned it. As far as this issue, I don't know that they decided anything. And if they do, I, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not too worried about it because the state attorney general has already gone after the Chino school district and he's promised that he's going to go after the other school districts. And now Clovis is going to be one of those that he goes after because they're violating the state constitution by violating the privacy of these kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing they kept saying over and over, do you know what the phrase is for Clovis that everybody always says? No. The way of life. Clovis is a way of life. Ew. They said that over. That's been the motto since I was a kid and I grew up from birth in Clovis. Clovis is a way of life. And several of them said over and over, do you want to be like Fresno? We can't be like Fresno. We have higher standards in Clovis. What the fuck are you talking about? It's a brainwashing. Yeah. It definitely is. And people, we have to fight. We have to fight this because I didn't think it was going to be anywhere near that intense. Um, and it was. It was from the moment I got there to the moment I left. It was, I don't want to relate it to other radical groups, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Will there be another, you know, is it going to be public comment from here on out? Or do you think that? I think where this is going is the is legally. I think it's going to go to the governor. Governor Newsom just passed three laws. One was that there needs to be cultural competency for teachers and counselors in schools. Another creates an advisory task force to determine the needs of LGBTQ plus students and help advance supportive initiatives. And a third requires families to show that they can and are willing to meet the needs of a child in foster care, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So that happened just this week. But I think this is all going to go to the legal route. I think despite what these schools want to do, there are California is just loaded with protections for LGBTQ people and we they don't have the people in government to stop us. So I think the state attorney general and Gavin Newsom are going to put all these schools, you got to stop all these schools from doing this stuff and but the question is where does it go after that? Yeah. So I want to transition us into our conversation with Nick Serafin because he's he's talking about parental rights and talking about the legal route. And he has his whole interview, he wrote a, an article for Slate, which we will link in the show notes, about the history of parental rights in terms of the Supreme Court and federal level precedent and the cases that people would, there was a lot of cases that they would bring in the 80s and the 90s that they were failing at. And now they have new tactics and we're seeing those new tactics playing out right here. It's the city council, it's the school boards, it's local, small state and and state government. 
So anyways, let's let's go ahead and transition into Nicholas talking a little bit about the history of parental rights. And I I strongly encourage you guys to to listen to this. He makes some points about communism that blew us away. Totally. Yeah, totally blew my mind. So let's go ahead and transition into that. Hi, Nick. It's so good to see you. Yep, so good to see you. <laughs> Please tell our listeners who you are and what you do. My name is Nicholas Serafin. I am assistant professor of law at Santa Clara uh, Law School. My background uh, academically, I've primarily focused on research. I have a PhD in moral and political philosophy from the University of Michigan, and then I got my law degree before that at Yale. And um, I primarily work on kind of issues involving, you know, inequality and social justice. I've written on um, certain aspects of racial identity um, previously. And then a lot of people over the last few years, I just started noticing this concerted push first to ban discussions of like racial injustice and uh, racial inequality in public schools. And then that sort of morphed into this newer movement to target LGBTQ youth and to, you know, ban books involving queer characters and storylines in schools. So just started getting interested in that and started, you know, investigating these parental rights claims that become so common and started working on this research project with a few research assistants last year. I had a couple wonderful research assistants who helped me compile a database of laws going after LGBTQ youth. And they're just within the last year and a half or two years, there's just literally hundreds of laws all over the country. And so I have been writing, you know, working on this big research project and then kind of publishing small pieces of it in media outlets. So I had this op-ed in Slate on parental rights. I've been working on another op-ed um, fairly soon. So great. So tell our listeners what the idea is behind parental rights and how that became part of like the social consciousness, because I mean, I kind of feel like parents have always had rights, but as a talking point, it feels like it's new, but maybe that's just because I am now a parent and I'm, you know, it's now on my radar where it wasn't when I was younger, but is that accurate that it is a bigger deal now, or is it just that it's more vicious now? You're absolutely right. The, the basic idea of parents having rights over their children's education upbringing is a very old one. So the earliest Supreme Court cases identifying parental rights date back to like the 1920s. And we can we can talk about those in just a second. But, you know, there's a, there's a long history in the abstract, right, of recognizing mm -hmm. parental rights. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right to note that they've taken on this new sort of political valence just within the last few years and really within the last 20 to 30 years. And that's slightly separate from what the Supreme Court has said about parental rights. This is almost over, you know, overwhelmingly coming from, you know, conservative Christians who starting 30 to 40 years ago were really pushing for like homeschooling, raising objections to like sex education, to books that they thought taught children a religious or, or anti-religious uh, materials. And, you know, this sort of newer, and I think you're absolutely right, more vicious way of engaging with parental rights is fairly recent. And there's one person in particular Michael Ferris, who's the former director of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is typically involved in all sorts of awful anti-LGBTQ Supreme Court cases. It's really this one individual, Michael Ferris, who's been pushing the parental rights 
argument, you know, for the last 30, 30 years or so, and it's finally starting to gain traction among right-wing political elites. And what is the history of Michael? Is he part of a right-wing organization? Is he Republican? Is he Christian? What is behind, so to speak, what he's doing? Yeah, he's, he's pretty much far-right conservative Christian who has said things dating back to like the 1970s that like um, he wants to abolish public schools, that public, public, public schools are sources for teaching children kind of anti-Christian ideas. Yeah, he's he's been the main proponent of the homeschooling movement going back 30 or 40 years. So it's explicitly, you know, his sort of push is explicitly religious in nature. And it's sort of interesting because he was behind a lot of cases starting in like the late 80s, early 90s, where parents were bringing parental rights arguments directly to court. One case which has probably one of my favorite case names of all time, Brown versus Hot, Sexy and Safer, which is from 1995. (laughs) Really? Yeah. You know, Hot, Sexy and Safer was basically a sort of sex ed program that a high school brought. And, you know, you can sort of be when you read about the details of sex education program, there are some, you know, things that maybe I could understand why some parents might object. But, you know, it was fundamentally like sex education teaching older high school students about, you know, using protection and whatnot. Wait, was was this the whole banana condom thing? Because I it remember that. that in, okay, I remember that in the 90s. I remember my parents were a little like, what, what, what are they going to do at school? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. It, was, it was a big part of the culture wars of the 1990s. And there was an earlier case, uh, Mozart versus Hawkins was 1987, in which this same um, individual, Michael Ferris, who's been pushing the parental rights argument, a couple parents sued um, a school district for assigning texts like The Wizard of Oz and Rumpelstiltskin because they thought these were somehow, you know, anti-religion or or anti-Christian in some way. And these cases largely failed, you know, Suing over like the Wizard of Oz, Rumpelstiltskin basically just like brought this guy and his movement a lot of ridicule. But more importantly, when parents were bringing these cases, none of these cases made their way up to the Supreme Court. These cases were all decided at the federal appellate level. And and basically what happened is that just a number of federal courts were like, look, yeah, the Supreme Court said that parents have the right to control their child's upbringing and education back in the 1920s. But that doesn't mean that parents have the right to like dictate specifically what public schools teach. So pretty much these cases, the sort of homeschooling or the religious parents and plaintiffs just lost them uniformly. And they're just like, you know, in almost almost every federal circuit, parents who brought these suits and asserted parental rights claims or even, even free exercise claims just lost, right? The courts were basically like, You can pull your kids out of school, you can homeschool them, you can take them to private schools, but you don't have a right to tell public schools what to teach. It's just totally impractical, right? Every parent's going to want to try to sort of dictate to public schools what they should teach. So this kind of early wave of parental rights lawsuits generally went nowhere, and the plaintiffs all lost. And isn't isn't part of the reason we don't want parents to necessarily create the curriculum for public schools is they're not educated in a way to do that. So isn't the real truth of this is they're not educated enough to decide what the curriculum should be. 
Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it, right? The court probably thinks that like these decisions are best left to individual teachers, to principals, to school districts that have the relevant expertise in figuring out what is kind of age appropriate, what children should be exposed to. I think that's definitely part of it. But I think there's also a sort of more principled rationale here, which is that, you know, public schools are, they serve diverse constituencies, right? And the curriculum that public schools teach should reflect that diversity. You can't have just only white parents or only kind of uh, straight anti-LGBTQ parents setting the curriculum, right? The curriculum kind of has to speak to a lot of different constituencies. So I think there's also a sort of like argument from like the pluralism inherent in public education as well here. So they were losing, but it doesn't feel like that was a deterrent. Did they learn from the loose, the losses of those that early wave and change strategies or what's different now than what was going on then? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. So why if they lost so uniformly in the 90s have these parental rights claims kind of persisted? Well, I think one of the big lessons, I suspect one of the big lessons that Michael Ferris and his organization and movement took from these cases, well, first they realize bringing lawsuits directly and asserting parental rights claims in front of courts is just a losing strategy because courts don't want to get involved with trying to set, you know, individual curriculum decisions. Um, a second reason is that, you know, a lot of these folks just started homeschooling their kids. There was an enormous explosion in the homeschooling population during this time. And, you know, I think for these folks, lawsuits were no longer necessary because they could just teach their ch children whatever they wanted at home. But I think another big change that's happened is that rather than try to assert parental rights claims in lawsuits and go directly to court and sue school districts, what they started to do is, I think it's kind of a twofold strategy. One is make parental rights arguments to the public at large. So the you know parental rights framing has become extremely popular just all over the place. I just have like, you know, this article I'm working on, I just could find, you know, 10 to 20 examples easily of people like, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, right? Virginia Governor uh, Youngkin, all using parental rights languages. Basically what Michael Ferris's organization are do doing now is going to state legislatures and getting state legislatures to enact parents' bills of rights or HB 1557, Florida's don't say, the so-called don't say gay bill. In the committee analysis of that bill, they actually cite two of the earliest Supreme Court cases, Meyer v. Nebraska, and um, Pierce versus Society's Sisters. So I think the lesson they learned was we shouldn't try to, you know, make these parental rights arguments to courts. We should make it to state legislatures and to parents themselves and just enact bills that supposedly protect parental rights. Which has become very powerful, and that's what's going on across the country. Don't you feel that all of this, starting with Florida and Texas and all the states across the country, is about swaying political favor with constituents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what is really why this strategy is so effective is well, a few things. One is that, you know, who's going to disagree with the idea that parents should have a pretty determinative say over their kid's upbringing, right? It's an idea that's commonsensical, that has a long history in American, um, you know, Supreme Court decisions and, and American culture generally. And it definitely like, you know, if you just frame it as this is just the parents' right to be involved in their kid's life, it's something that's going to totally appeal to kind of centrist 
normie voters who might not who might not be hostile to LGBTQ communities necessarily, but aren't necessarily you know uh, deeply pro LGBTQ, and so they think, oh, like you know, it's it's about allowing a parent to be involved in their kid's life. So it's a very anodyne term. Yeah, and I, I have to say, Nicholas, that even I'm not a parent. I am. Sorry, Kalia is, and but I as I've had conversations about these issues for the last year or so. I have had to say to myself, well, if I was a parent, wouldn't I want some kind of control over how my child is taught in the public schools? And my first answer is yes, it's my child. I would want something. But then I go to the logical conclusion of that. And of course, I come to, no, I'm not an educator. I don't know how to set curriculum and I don't know you know, what my child should be taught. But I can see how that is very relevant to people saying, even if they didn't have the thought before, now that this political climate is putting the thought in their heads, they're going, oh, I don't have control over my child's education. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's a framing that's going to appeal to parents who, again, might not be super, you know, politically active otherwise. You know, it's interesting what you just said there. Parents might have this idea that, uh, that, some anxiety about threats to their children or something like that, right? On the one hand, Republican politicians are hammering on this language of parental rights. On the other hand, they're also hammering on this language of, oh, well, you know, your kids are being groomed. And, uh, you know, this language of grooming, this language of child sex predation has also become ubiquitous on the right. So on the one hand, they're saying your kids are deeply under threat and we have the sort of legal means for you to protect your kids from this threat. I think another reason why it appeals to parents is that, you know, I used, I used to say people over 40, but the older I get, the more I keep pushing this back. So I'll say people <laughs> over 50. Um, oh, we love that one. She loves this, Nicholas, <laughs> because she calls me old on every show. So she loves that. People over 50. Like Chris. Okay, sorry. All right, Dad, there okay, it sorry. is. There I'm it good. is. Go ahead. Right. So people over 50. Go, go ahead, Nicholas. She's done. Without, without casting aspersion on anyone over 50 who might be on this podcast, um, oh. generally, generally speaking, <laughs> I think it's fair to say folks over 50 were educated and socialized in a time in which it's not just that gays and lesbians were in the closet. Um, it's that there were authoritative, seemingly authoritative social and political figures saying that homosexuality is a form of mental illness, that gay men are um, going to prey on your children, that uh, folks who are, you know, transgender or otherwise gender diverse are, you know, mentally ill or otherwise sort of moral pariahs. Um, so you have a sort of, you know, class of parent that arguably has probably absorbed a lot of that sort of information. And then imagine what it's like to be, you know, say 18 or younger today, and your awareness of and comfort with evolving gender norms and, and gender dynamics is just totally different from someone your parents' age, right? So I think another thing that parental rights language is really playing upon is probably this anxiety that a lot of parents feel that their children are just being raised in this social landscape that's just dramatically different from what they're used to. And, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of social science suggesting that your perception of someone else's sex characteristics and your perception of their gender identity plays a really fundamental role in just your interactions with them socially, right? So you imagine a parent who, again, was raised in a time when gender norms are very different, when conversations about these things either didn't happen or happened in a very different way, you know, trying to understand, you know, their kid who suddenly is is coming out as, as queer or trans or something like that, it, I think, just probably deeply freaks out a lot of parents and this parental rights language 
really probably um, kind of plays on that anxiety. It seems like it's a lot of fear, right? Because we fear what we don't know. And, you know, from a macro level, like similar ways, like my daughter has Netflix and Hulu and the internet in a way that I certainly didn't have. And so my model of how to parent in terms with media is based on my parents talking to me about the newspaper and the radio and television, which was very different than now how we're having to parent. So we don't even have a model of how to deal with that. So I can totally understand like the, where the fear comes in, because if your parents didn't teach you how to do something, how do you know how to do that as a parent yourself? That makes sense. But I'm, I'm curious as that younger generation is growing up, is this one of those cases where if we wait for the boomers to die, this stuff will go away because people will have evolved and changed? Or is this, you know, is it going to last longer than that because now the tentacles are coming in and and if we know anything about the GOP, we know that they like to play the long game. Well, and you know, I always say this, and and this goes right after what Kaylee was saying, was we have so many people in the world that are saying, oh, once the older generation dies out, things will be different. I'm like, it's 2023, and you see what's happening with the younger generation. Do you really think it's the older of that generation that you were talking about in the 70s has died off? They're not here anymore. And it's not only here, it's worse. So these people raise children that have the same kind of mindset. This whole idea that if a certain generation dies out, humanity is going to change is crazy. And I'm not criticizing Kalia for saying that because lots of people say that. They've said that to me for decades. I just don't believe a word of it. I think I'm sort of uh, maybe somewhere between you both. <laughs> yeah, v- very go, diplomatic here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea that I, I'm also s- s- slightly hopeful for Gen Z for a reason I'll get to in a second, but also s- skeptical of this narrative that Gen Z is going to save us as much as I would like it to be true. For one thing, it's just, you know, um, to Chris, your point about maybe being skeptical about just straightforward kind of linear progress. I mean, it's crazy to me to think that, you know, if if when o- Obergefell came down and we were all celebrating, you know, the uh, legalization of same-sex marriage, if someone had, you know, kind of given you a brief window into what life would be like, you know, almost 10 years after Obergefell, and it would be fascist groups like the Proud Boys showing up to pride parades, you would have thought like, oh, no, that's crazy, right? We're on this sort of trajectory of acceptance and inclusion. And one thing that really, um, I think, is worrying is that some recent opinion polling has suggested that there have been declines in acceptance of gay marriage, even among some folks on the left, but primarily among folks on the right. It's gone on the right from a majority position back to a minority position, which suggests that you know, some of these attitudes of acceptance really can be changed for the worse. On the other hand, one thing that does give me some optimism is that you look at opinion polling for like Gen Z folks today, and it doesn't seem like it's having much of an effect among, I think, you know, kids who are like under 25, like especially among young women, they're moving left, like by like 20 to 30 points is some astounding amount. I'm sure some of that, I, I imagine, is um, the attacks on LGBTQ rights. I'm sure also some of it is the Supreme Court Absolutely. overturning Roe and, and the abortion mm-hmm. issue. So I think, you know, I think there's some reasons for optimism. But Chris, I think you were right that, you know, the the idea that, you know, we can just kind of like, again, Gen Z, Gen Z is going to save us is, is probably not something we can we can rely on. 
to be fair, I wasn't saying that I necessarily believe it, but I definitely hear that a lot. And, and to your point, you're talking about a linear movement of progress, which is the ideal version, but we all know that's not really how it happens. It tends to be either two steps forward, one steps back, two steps forward, you know, et cetera, or like a pendulum. And to me, this feels more like the pendulum where we swing really wildly and eventually the whole thing kind of moves one direction, but it is a big swings and stuff. So you've talked a little bit and you've referenced the stuff that happened in the 1920s. Can we go back to that real fast? Can you tell us about that swing of the pendulum? Like what was going on in the 1920s that the Supreme Court decided that has set the precedent that they're using nowadays? Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you asked about that because what is, um, I think, really odd and underappreciated about the parental rights strategy is that um, so like I said, you know, the, the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill actually cites some of these early parental rights cases. And if you actually go back and read the Supreme Court's parental rights jurisprudence, it like really, I argue in this in this forthcoming research project I have, and, and this is sort of the basis of my op-ed for Slate, um, you actually read these parental rights cases and they just don't support what the right is trying to do with parental rights today. So there were three parental rights cases, and they're kind of the foundational cases in the 1920s, Meyer versus Nebraska, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, and Farrington versus Tokushiji. And what really unites these cases is that they're all cases in which there's like a hostile local majority, and they're trying to forbid a local, uh, like local minority families from teaching their children language or like religious practices. So for example, in Meyer versus Nebraska's case from 1923, you know, this is um, right after World War One. In Nebraska, the local German immigrant population is actually kind of a new group, and there's a lot of hostility to Germans, um, both, I think, kind of a nativist hostility, but also hostility due to um, World War One. And the local community outlaws teaching German in public schools and in your own home. Whoa, in your own home? Yeah. Wow. Which goes against the whole, whole exactly. Well, exactly. oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you totally see what the argument is, right? Like, and and uh, the other parental rights cases, like Pierce versus Society Sisters. This was a case in Oregon in 1925, in which the state enacted a ban on Catholic parochial schools, and it was a ban endorsed by the KKK, um, who were also, you know, in addition <laughs> to be violently anti-black, were also um, historically anti-Catholic. And then in Farrington versus Tokushiji, this is a less uh, well-known parental rights case, which was from 1927, and there's a similar thing going on. This was in Hawaii. The um, state enacted a ban on teaching basically Asian languages. The, the ban was such that they were going to drive um, private tutors and um, language schools out of business that were, you know, teaching Asian languages to the diverse community in Hawaii at the time. You know, in each case, the court says the parents have a fundamental right to control the upbringing and education of their children. But what's interesting about the language in these cases is that the court's kind of framing it in like anti-discrimination terms. So there's this really beautiful line from Tokushige where the court, the Supreme Court Chief Justice at the time says, look, the constitution protects the Japanese parent just as much as it protects any other parent. And so what, what's really kind of perverse about the kind of contemporary parental rights movement is that you look at the early parental rights cases and they're all about protecting minority families. And they say really great things about how the family is a site of diversity, of 
cultural traditions that get passed down within minority families. And the court's really protecting the family on that basis, protect, protecting like different families. German parents have the right to teach their children German. Japanese parents have the right to teach their children Japanese. And, and you know, they're saying in, in Meyer, there's this very famous line where the Supreme Court says, you know, the state doesn't have the right to standardize its children just on the basis of, you know, hostility towards Germans. I love that, standardize your children. So that's interesting that these were Supreme Court cases in the 20s that you're talking about. Now we know that a lot of these cases that are going through are state-based. There are state legislators, state school boards, city councils, all of these things that are restricting certain things based on a, on a state level. I don't know that these are going to go to the Supreme Court in this country since right now we seem to be in this fervor of, you know, state rights as opposed to federal rights. What? Yeah. What do you think? Nick? Do you think? Yeah. Where do you think this is going? Ah, yeah. So it, it's a good point. And so in the cases in the 80s and 90s that I was talking about earlier that were these federal appellate cases where the parents generally lost, the reason why they ended up in federal court was they would assert constitutional rights, right? They'd say, look, in the 1920s, the Supreme Court said parents have a fundamental right to control the education of their children. And that's what we're asserting here. We have a federal, we have a, a constitutional right to control the education of our children. We don't want our children exposed to the Wizard of Oz um, or to sex education. You know, we're just exercising this right that the Supreme Court recognized back in the 1920s. One thing that's a little tricky here is that these early Supreme Court cases and parental rights Supreme Court cases generally, there are not that many of them. And what people often don't understand about Supreme Court cases is that a lot of Supreme Court cases kind of like they bring up more questions than they resolve. So in these Supreme Court uh, cases from the 1920s where the court says parents have the right to teach, you know, say German or Japanese in their own home, you know, what follows from that? Does that mean parents have the right to object to public school curriculum? Does that mean parents have the right to kind of like dictate what schools teach, right? Like none of those questions are answered um, in these early cases. So again, jumping back to the, these cases in the 80s and 90s, what federal appellate courts basically said was, look, you just don't, you know, yes, you have a fundamental right to control your, the education of your child, but nothing in those early cases means you have a right to control public school curriculum. That's not part of the fundamental right of parents. What is going to happen with the more recent cases? Because you're right, Chris, these are you know state laws. You know, they might not necessarily sort of directly cite parental rights in the same way. That I'm not really sure. Like Another thing that people don't always appreciate about constitutional law is that like a lot of con law analysis is like, I can make arguments based on, you know, what I think are fair readings of past cases. But what is the Supreme Court going to do? Is this even going to make it the Supreme Court? I think there's just a lot of uncertainty there. And one thing that kind of worries me is that parental rights are kind of a blank canvas because there haven't been that many cases you can make parental rights do a ton of work. And, you know, what would, you know, the current conservative majority on the Supreme Court like to do with parental rights? Well, I think they'd be highly sympathetic to a lot of the kind of uh, parental rights bills that are coming out. Right, right. Nicholas, can you speak to the other side of this, which Kaylee and I are part of the LGBTQ plus community. So we're obviously very sensitive this, to this and covering this a lot, but kind of it bothers me even more to me, is the current backlash against Black studies. 
that started in Florida, I, I believe it started in Florida, Black Studies, Diversity and Equity Training, all of uh, critical race theory, all of these things. That, I think, is so much deeper and should be so much more offensive to the American population simply because there are more people in these groups than there are in the LGBTQ plus community. I'm fascinated by why they are pursuing this. I, I know why they're pursuing the LGBTQ stuff. They always have. But why are they going after these ethnic groups that there's absolutely no justification for barring education in Black history or any of the other uh, subjects? Yeah, so it's it's a great question. And, you know, the bans on what is called critical race theory, but it's not actually critical race theory. Right. Exactly. Uh, the, the bans on on critical race theory were also justified in terms of parental rights. And there was an interesting blog post I found by someone at the far right um, Heritage Foundation who said, yeah, parental rights is, is a great framing device for banning critical race theory and, you know, anything having to do with LGBTQ uh, content. I mean, you know, well, first, you know, why are conservatives and the Trump Republican Party going after, you know, ethnic minorities? Well, I think that's kind of like the animating impulse of, of the conservative party at this point is to kind of draw insider outsider distinctions and trying to ban critical race theory as radicals part of that, claiming that, you know, drag performers are coming for your children as part of that. So you're saying it's basically comes down to a tribalism, us versus them power dynamic and everything kind of stems from that? I think that's part of it, but I also think that, and the op-ed I'm working on kind of is, is speaking to this, I think that whereas progressives look at Gen Z with a great deal of hope, I think conservatives look at Gen Z with a great deal of fear because they fear that they are losing this sort of generational battle and they fear the generational shift. And I mean, you know, I think this is also consonant with a lot of right-wing politicians who have started using the language of, of replacement and talking about how uh, non-white folks are replacing you. I think it's a sort of like a fear that they're losing in the long term. And the parental rights stuff is, I think it's an attempt to introduce children to hierarchy. When you start looking at how and thinking about how conservative politicians talk about children and interact with children, right? There's like, like Ron DeSantis was actually losing the Florida governor's race. He was kind of a nobody. And then he releases this political ad where he's teaching his one-year-old daughter to build the wall, stacking blocks. And it gets international headlines because everyone is just like, what a freak. But you know, this, I, my kind of theory is that to kind of recreate hierarchy over time, you have to introduce children to it, right? So I remember uh, right after Trump got elected in 2016, there was this horrifying video that made the rounds on Twitter of a bunch of middle schoolers at a school in Michigan chanting, build the wall, their Hispanic classmates, right? Part of this is teaching, you know, white students, straight students, male students, that, you know, it's okay to bully, it's okay to be cruel to people that are outsiders, you know, like another aspect of this is um, Florida has banned like AP psychology because it asks people to think about how race and sexual orientation and gender have shaped your life experience. Wow, I didn't know that. They've also banned this approach to learning called social emotional learning where basically you're trying to develop a child's kind of empathetic capacities, capacities to cooperate. And the um, originators of social emotional learning have argued that like, you know, for a democracy to survive, you really need people that can empathize with people who are different than they are, who are willing to cooperate, listen to diverse mm -hmm. points of view. And, you know, it's hardly any surprise that, you know, DeSantis and his uh, sort of Lieutenant Chris Rufo have gone after social emotional learning as well. 
right? They don't right, want right. children who have the capacity to think in terms of, you know, how identity shapes lives and how, you know, identity shapes lives differently. Yeah, I think what's fascinating about the difference between what you were talking about in the 20s in those cases and what's happening now and what always goes through my mind is, okay, uh, even though those were good decisions in the 20s as far as the community and diversity is 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 uh, considered, you know, the education level of people is so much higher than it was in that time. The internet is there, which I know is also a destructive force because you can find any information there, but you can find information about you know, the LGBTQ plus community, the black community, all of these things, you can find information about religion and what the underlying strategies are there. All of that information is available and we are still moving backwards, which leads us to understand that it's more of an emotional thing than a logical thing, which is completely scary because you can't really fight emotion with logic. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I also think what's different about it, and when, I, when I was doing this research, I, I was just really puzzled because you're you're reading these cases from the 1920s where the court's saying like, you know, again, the court is protecting minority family groups and um, talking about the value of diversity and, and, and pluralism. You know, I think what's going on in those cases is the court is looking at Soviet communism. And there's, um, you know, at the court and among the public also, this like fear of what a state that has too much power can do in terms of trying to sort of, you know, standardize its citizens. And so part, I think, of what the court is doing is is sort of giving power to parents relative to the state out of a fear of a sort of like, you know, the sort of they're observing the kind of totalitarian characteristic of Soviet communism. That's interesting. And something that I think is worth considering is that when there were authoritarian states like Nazi Germany or um, Soviet Russia that we could look at as an example to set ourselves apart from anti-communist conservatives were probably a bit more on board for, you know, thinking of diversity as a value, as a distinctly American value, as, you know, kind of maybe allowing for maybe more kind of diverse power sources, right? Also affording minority parents some powers. You know, we have we have a lot less of that. In fact, you know, right-wing politicians are much more sympathetic to authoritarian leaders now relative to then. So I think that might also be part of it. That's interesting, the juxtaposition of people in those days so much fearing communism and Russia that they would want more diversity and inclusion in America to combat that. And now we're at a point where Russia is kind of heralded by the right wing groups and Republicans. Mm -hmm. And it's the same Russia as it was before. Yeah, that's I've never thought of it that way before. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's possible. It seems likely to me that for a lot of folks on the right, their commitment to democratic values was strongest when it was a form of opposition to communist Russia. Now that, you know, that threat is gone, I think we're seeing, you know, just just today, there's a, a great profile on Mitt Romney that came out on his on, in the Atlantic and his decision to retire. And Romney is straight up saying, like, I don't think a lot of people in my party are committed to the Constitution. So it is we do have this sort of puzzle of why there was more of a commitment to pluralism, democratic values among kind of right leaning folks, say, 100 years ago. How did we come to a point where Romney is a logical voice? That's just so fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? I'm going to be Little Miss Sunshine here and say, uh, the as you always are, the optimist in me says that if somebody like Romney can come out and say that, now I know he's not in danger, he's not running, like he doesn't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. But like, I think that there might still be hope for some people within the GOP to 
leave the GOP or change the GOP. <laughs> I know you don't believe it. That's adorable. But That's I am adorable. an optimist. I would like the party to, that party to to break and and to evolve into something better. That's well, and we know the pendulum always swings, and I'm sure that that will happen eventually. But then will it swing back again? The point is, what's the end game here? Uh, just as the same way that people told me in the '70s that young people are going to save the world, and now they're saying it now, young people barely vote. So I don't know how they're going to save the world. So it's an interesting. Yeah, yeah I know, Kayla. You don't <laughs> want me to say this stuff, but it happens no, to be no, true. You say what you say. I. I have a question, Nick. So here locally, we're dealing right now, like within the next couple of weeks with a parental rights issue. Clovis, which is right next to Fresno, their city council uh, just met to talk about banning basically a sex education book because it has LGBT representation in it, as well as, you know, all the other things. And graphic images. Graphic cartoon people in bed. But right. the the next step that is also happening right now is that they are working at Clovis Unified School District on writing, they've been asked to write a policy of how to out students to the parents. And w- there was a, a city council meeting. It wasn't on the agenda, but the public comment section was taken up by people getting up and saying, this is important. We want this. We want you guys to write a policy. A hundred percent of the people who spoke were in favor of this. And I would say probably 80% of them said the words parental rights at some point during their little spiel. So how do we combat that by saying parental rights are important, but there, there has to be a limit because students have a right? Like, where is that line and what can we do? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And one thing that I was I was faced with a sort of a decision point when I was starting on this research, which was that, did I want to argue, you know, about student rights and the rights of children, or did I want to try to make it more focused on parental rights? And the reason why I stayed focused on parental rights is that there are some important Supreme Court cases where the court has said things like, you know, students have a, a right to information. You can't restrict information from, from flowing through the public schools. So, you know, I, I definitely any sort of litigation would want to kind of raise that argument. The reason why I stayed focused on parental rights, though, is that I actually think folks on the left should lean into parental rights. I, to me, the most basic problem with the parental rights argument is why is it that it's only the white parents who object to critical race theory? Why do they have parental rights? But, you know, parents who want to teach their children the history of racial injustice, they don't have the right to have that in school. Why is it that it's the straight parents who are opposed to any mention of sexual orientation, even totally non-obscene mentions of sexual orientation? Why do those parents get to have the right to control a school environment, but not parents who are accepting of that form of education. You know, I actually think that the parents who are supportive of, you know, teaching LGBTQ identity, teaching critical race theory, should be making these arguments on their own behalf and should not shrink from these fights. And I also think that, um, I mean, you know, what you said a second ago about the sort of pendulum shifting is that, I wonder if the pendulum has already started to shift a bit because you're seeing one thing I read a lot after the first Republican debate is that there are very few mentions of woke. I think the word woke was only used like once or twice. And in fact, at a rally recently, Trump said something like, I don't understand why people focus on woke. No one knows what it means. Right. So I I think there are some (laughs) 
maybe early signs that people are kind of starting to get tired of this and tired of the fanaticism, you know, like the, the moms for Liberty folks, this like far right organization, the fact that every, you know, you said, Kaylee, like 80% of the people raise this sort of parental rights language suggests to me, it's a very sort of coordinated campaign, you know? So in addition to leaning into the parental rights argument and asserting parental rights for themselves, I also think that like families should appreciate that they're almost certainly in the majority when it comes to what they want their kids taught. I think it's a very well-organized and very noisy and very extreme minority, but nonetheless a minority that's pushing a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. See, see um, a little bit of optimism we can all agree on right there. I didn't say it was optimism. <laughs> I said I agree. Don't, don't go too far on me. Nicholas, thank you so much for your taking the time today. We really appreciate this. It was highly educational and way, way exceeded my expectations for our conversation. So thank you so much. And if the people have follow-up questions, if people want to come at you, not come at you, but at, at you, questions or, or comments, or so it, should they get in touch with you and how best is there to do that. I am on the platform currently known as X, formerly known as Twitter, Nick Serafin. I think my, my handle's N underscore Serafin. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be there given the way the platform is trending, but anyone who um, has questions or, or you know wants to ask or learn more, feel free to reach me on that platform. Awesome. Are you going to make the move over to threads? Um, we'll see. Um, you know, they're just like, we're in this sort of like fractured social media landscape and it's not clear. We are. I mean, it's shifting. We don't know where this is going to end up. I left Twitter. I left, uh, what's the weather one? I, the knock, knock, Kalia, what's TikTok. the one I left? Oh, TikTok. Yeah, I left TikTok and, <laughs> TikTok and Twitter. And I may leave threads after I join, but it's so, I don't know. It, it feels so commercial and corporate these days. So I don't know. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sort of tying back into the broader subject, what's partly driving Elon Musk insane? Well, it's the fact that he has a trans child, right? Right. So, yeah. Okay, Nicholas. Well, thank you so much. We are thrilled to have you on the show. And this was a lot of education. I love some of those points you brought up. So thank you so much for being there. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. it was, and you asked really wonderful questions. And we're going to link to your Slate article. Okay. So, but please send us the next one whenever so that we can make sure that we share I will that do so. one as Thank well. you. And, you know, good luck in your own battles with your uh, local school board. Thanks, Nick. Take care. So there's there's a couple things that I wanted to reference um, after after that interview with Nicholas. And the first is that he talked about the decline in same sex marriage um, acceptance rates. And that that is definitely true. We're losing numbers on that. And it is it's very disheartening. Basically, between 2022 and 2023, Gay and lesbian relations went down from a 71% approval rate to a 64%. I mean, that's big. Meanwhile, the death penalty went from a 55% approval rate to a 60%, you know, approval rate. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Let's see here. There's like birth control, you know, went also went up. It was a 92% approval and now it's 98%. So it seems weird to me. And I have to ask, like, what kind of questions? How are they asking these questions? Because right. it just it feels it feels like there could be some some wiggle room here. Sex between unmarried man and woman was at 76 percent approval and is now at 72. So people are getting more prudish, but they they want more birth control. I I'm not sure how to read these numbers. Honestly. Well, I mean, how do you feel about polls? Because I have a real problem with polls. Have you ever been polled? Oh, all the time. I love being polled. Oh, yes. 
Oh, so you answer your phone if you don't know the number. Yes. Huh? I, well, yes, I have a child. <laughs> it's important. Oh, you never yeah, know who's yeah. calling. It, it could be the school or another parent or, you know. I usually don't. And when I've gotten people who want to do a poll, I say no. <laughs> and I don't know why. I just, I don't trust polls because you see them go up and down with what's going on in the media. Uh, I think I stand by this till the day I die. People are, in America at least, are amazingly tribal. They want to belong to a group. They want to agree with other people. They don't want to have original thought because it hurts their brains. Those three things, they're tribal. They want to belong to a group, which is kind of the same thing. And they don't want to think because it hurts their brains. So that makes polls very easy to pull off and to manipulate other people. And it always pisses me off when we're in an election and they release polls right before people go out to vote. I'm like, stop it. Stop trying to influence people. Just let them go and talk about it afterwards. So this is the same thing. I don't know if you knew this about me, but I was a sociology major in college. And so polls and and gathering data was a big part of what we studied. And the way that you ask the question, the order in which the questions and when you only give people limited responses. So it's like, have you heard of Bob Smith, who's running for city council? And you say, no, I'm going to tell you about Bob Smith. Bob Smith was endorsed by fellow cops. Now you know about Bob Smith. Are you more or less likely to vote for Bob Smith? I am neither more or less because you know what? I have not done my own research, but now you're not letting me tell you that I haven't changed my mind. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of times it's very limiting. So yes, polls can definitely be misleading, but they can sometimes give you kind of like a little sense of what it is. And so- And I know there's science behind it. There's science behind the group of people that you poll, Ben, you extrapolate that into the larger population. I know that I understand that, but I don't know. Gallup tends to be more trustworthy than a lot of the other places. But again, you're, you know, like, what's the sample size and where are these numbers coming from? And, and, and how is the question phrased? I feel like that's a really important part, you know? Of course. So another thing that um, Nicholas said right towards the very end of our call, which I don't know if if everybody knows about it, he referenced Elon Musk's trans child. And I don't know if you know about Elon Musk. I just read an article about 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 his wife and about the child. Well, mostly about her. Yeah. Yeah. Her name is Vivian Jenna Wilson, and he has described her as a communist. And uh, basically, she has cut ties and refuses to be with him and hang out with him and do anything with him because he is, you know, awful and doesn't approve of her. And there's a lot of stuff like that. So there's that. And remember, people, brilliance often goes with cuckoo. There's something else that Nick was talking about. Something that I read recently on the internet says parental rights, much like a well-worn piece of velvet, should be handled delicately and with care. They form the soft fabric that cradles a child's upbringing, providing warmth, comfort, and security. Just as we wouldn't want to see velvet torn or neglected, it's crucial that we advocate for the preservation and protection of these rights, ensuring that every child has the opportunity to grow in an environment filled with love and stability. And I thought, well, yeah, if your parents are actually loving and stable people. <laughs> like, right, exactly. Yes. And I think that this is a thing like what Nick was saying, that, you know, your right to teach the language in your home and to teach your values to your child ends at your front door. You don't right. have to teach other people's children your values. And it's not the job of the schools to do it. And I, one of the things 
that is is like the logical next step in terms of this parental rights business is that it's part of the push to scare people about public education in order to push the school choice voucher, aka charter schools idea. Because when mm-hmm. there's and in charter schools, there are fewer checks and balances. So it's easier to indoctrinate and to teach extremist views in the charter school system. But we won't need charter schools if people are happy with their public schools. But if people are scared of public schools, then they will turn to charter schools and private <clears throat> religious private schools. Because even though there's a lot of people who homeschool, we all know that that's really hard. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, yeah, but there's also yeah. a lot of that in this. It's, again, fewer checks and balances. Public schools are a public safety net. They just are, and they ought to be. Yeah, let's be honest. The reason a lot of people homeschool is because they don't want their kids indoctrinated. Yeah. Like, you know, to a tolerance and acceptance. One of the other things that Gavin Newsom did this week, which I forgot to mention, was he also signed legislation that requires schools serving first through 12th grade to have at least one gender neutral bathroom, which we all know they freak out about. Yes, they definitely do. So, there's one other little thing when I was doing my my post interview research and stuff, I came across this study that was done by the National Library of Medicine. They wrote a paper and it, the paper is called Political Ideology and Pandemic Lifestyles, the Indirect Effect of Empathy, Authoritarianism and Threat. It's a fascinating paper and I will not read the whole thing to you, but I'm going to read this paragraph to you because it's talking about the idea of empathy, which is something we talked about with Nicholas. And it's something that you and I talk about a lot. So empathy in terms of conservative versus liberal. While we are regularly inundated with popular depictions of the heartless conservatives and the bleeding heart liberals, research consistently shows that the political conservatives tend to exhibit lower levels of compassion and empathy, less concern for the feelings and experiences of others relative to their more liberal counterparts. Kamen and Rapier, the people who wrote part of this paper, explain that whereas, quote, liberals tend to focus on the moral principle of care slash harm, aka the ability to feel and to be disturbed by the pain of others, conservatives tend to empathize individual responsibility. These may constrain how compassion is expressed. So these tendencies are at least partially supported by the differences in attribution styles. Okay, so liberals often attribute external causes to people's plight, i.e. perceived unjust social practices and structures are the causes of poverty, etc., and therefore they feel more sympathy towards the people suffering from them, while conservatives attribute internal causes, perceived laziness and drug use, etc., as the result as the cause of poverty, and therefore they feel less sympathy. There's also important ideological differences. On one hand, liberals may be more empathetic and compassionate towards the suffering of others because they tend to emphasize fairness and equality and justice. On the other hand, conservatives are less empathetic and compassionate because they are more concerned with, quote, order and traditionalism (laughs) and in-group loyalty and respect for authority and purity. So which one of those groups is more religious? <laughs> I'll give you one guess. <laughs> I think it's telling that usually conservatives and people in that mindset tend to tend to stay with their own kind. Mm-hmm. And I believe that if you stay with your own kind and you don't go out and into the world mm-hmm. and mix with people and learn about other people, you will not have empathy. The reason that so many of us liberals have so much empathy as one 
because we have needed empathy at one point or another, but mostly because we hang out with people who are not like us, who are experiencing other circumstances that we are not, and we get to know them and they become our friends and our family, and then we become empathetic. This is why we're always saying, come out, come out wherever you are. If you're an LGBTQ person and it's safe, mm -hmm. come out because it lets people know that we're just like everybody else. Exactly. And and going outside of your comfort zone can be really hard. It can be hard to go out into a new group of people and it can be hard to try new things. But I think that those of us who are more liberal inclined tend to appreciate that in a different level, you know, and we seek for yeah. it, you know, when we, yeah. we attempt it anyway, there you go. Well, Hey, so something I did that got me out of my <laughs> comfort zone was I joined kickball and it was great and it's awesome. And I realized that in not our last episode, because that was the Allison episode where we talked about Chloe, but in the, the last regular episode, we talked a lot about kickball and um, my velvety voice said kickball a zillion times and your velvety voice said Tiana's name. And we, we laughed about that, but you know what we did not do, Chris, we didn't tell anybody actually how they could get more information about kickball. So I'm going to oh. remedy. <laughs> Well, you've already said it six times. Yeah. So Tiana is once again on the floor. She has to drink water now. That's how she's hydrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, do do shots of water, Tiana, go. please. It's good for you. Um, so it's called Out Loud Sports. We play at Selma Lane Park on the weekends. The first game's at 11, the second game's at 12, and the third game's at 1. So you can come out. There's shade. There's benches. There's a bunch of people. There's a playground. There's bathrooms that are relatively clean as far as park bathrooms go. It's a nice park. And it's a lot of fun, even if you um, even if you don't root for my team, because we all, you know, we aren't always playing, you can root for the other teams. And I, I will just tell you, in our last game, one of the teams didn't show up, so they had to forfeit. So there wasn't going to be a game for, for the team that was there. So the rest of us made our new team and we did a scrimmage because the whole point yeah. is that we're together and we're having fun. And that was great. And I, it, and I played some music for some background music and it was a good time. Yeah. And there's lots of shade at this park. I do like this park because there's lots of shade. A lot of good community building out there and people come and just watch. So you don't have to come and play. You can just come and but watch. again, when are we going to get hot dogs out there? Yes. When are we going to get a grill and get hot dogs? I'm just saying. With ketchup? <laughs> With lots of ketchup. Lots of and ketchup. relish and onions and sauerkraut and whatever you want. That's right. Oh, man. Well, you know, in a couple of weeks, it'll probably be too cold. But maybe, maybe we can make it happen. I don't know. Okay, Chris, well, that about sums up this episode. We'll be back next week to talk about banned book weeks. And Chris and I have been reading a few of the banned books, some of the most banned books, and we're going to talk a lot about them and what the status of a lot of different banned books, lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera, are at the current state. So stay tuned for that. If you would like to nominate an LGBT-friendly business or an LGBT-run business, or you have comments or questions, feel free to email us at itsaqueerthangthang at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Tell your friends to listen. And if you really like what we do, which I hope you do, I hope that's why you're still listening, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps spread the word of mouth. And we feel very strongly that the, the messages of the show, I mean, sometimes we just goof around, but 
I think a lot of times we talk about serious stuff that people ought to hear about, and it would be good to get that into the little ear holes of as many people as possible. So, Absolutely. And now that we've talked about, you know, the summer stuff like cucumber vodka and kickball, you know, the fall is coming, and I'll talk a lot about what you can bake and cook and entertain with. I, it's my favorite time of year, so I can't wait. Exactly. Happy October. Happy October, guys. See you next time. We'll do frozen Ew, hot dogs. Sounds nasty. <laughs> Cheesecake hot dogs. No, <laughs> I don't want to yuck your yum, but that is nasty sounding. <laughs> no, that does sound, that does sound disgusting. I agree with you. 